Do you know what it's like to get bad news? I'm sure everyone here knows what it's like to get bad news. Sometimes we, we just expect to get bad news from certain people. I remember the first time I got a letter from a law firm. It was somebody, you know, somebody was going to sue me um, from a car accident that I had, I was totally at fault. And so I just ignored it and hope, hoping it would go away, and it actually did. But that didn't always work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, you know, recently, again, I got, every time I get a letter from some law firm, I just, you know, um, my wife and I have been sued before, and, you know, and I, I was called for jury duty recently, and, you know, so every time I get no, some communication from a, a, an attorney, I have nothing against attorneys, but I just feel like it's going to be bad news. I just expect it to be. Anytime I take my truck to the mechanic and he looks at my truck and then he calls me into the shop, I just expect him to give me bad news, you know? Some of you have had really bad experiences at hospitals. And so when your doctor calls you or your doctor says, hey, we come in my office, let's sit down and talk. I mean, you just expect, you expect to get bad news. Do you remember what it was like when you were a kid, when, when someone got called to the principal's office? Do you remember, you know, it's, it would come over the PA system, you know, so-and-so, please come to the principal's office. What was the noise that everyone made? Right. Why did we do that? Why did, who taught us to do that? We just expect that it's someone's in trouble. You know, that's just the way it is. And so, even if your parents, maybe, maybe your parent would, your dad would tell you, you know, hey, we need to talk. I mean, we need to sit down, yeah. And so we just expect bad news from people in authority or people who have, you know, people who have some expertise that we don't and they want to talk with us. We just come to expect bad news sometimes. And I think that many people, unfortunately, relate that way to God. You know, for whatever reason, they've come to expect, it's almost like if God would tell you, let's talk. We need to have a talk. Like you would expect bad news. You, maybe you look at the Bible as, as like a really long letter from an attorney and you just expect you open this, this up and you're going to get some bad news. A lot of people, for, for many different reasons, just relate to God that way. They feel like if God were to speak to me or if he could, you know, if he could talk to me and I could understand him, it wouldn't be good. And, and, and that's, why most pe- that's why a whole lot of people, honestly, don't go to church. Is because they feel like they come to church, they're just, they're going to hear something they don't want to hear. They're going to hear, hear some bad news. Or God is angry with them or disappointed with them or doesn't really want to be with them. He just is this God who just looks down on us and just continually gives us disappointment and bad news. And a lot of people just think about God and they think, you know, what has God ever done for me? What has he ever done for me? I mean, I've prayed to God before and I've asked him for specific things and he's never really come through for me. He's never answered my prayers the way that I thought he should. He's never done done anything great for me when I needed him to. I've tried it. I've tried God. I've tried church. I've tried all that and it just didn't do anything for me. I just walked away disappointed or angry. And so a lot of people feel that, like, towards God, you know, he's just, he's just this, you know, this big daddy in the sky who's, who's, likes to give bad news to people. But the story of, of Christmas, which, you know, theologians call that the incarnation. That's what, that's what we're really talking about, the incarnation. It's just a theological term that means God becoming flesh, God becoming a person. That's what we celebrate around Christmas. The reality that God himself came to us 
in the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully human and yet fully God. And, and he entered the world just like we did as a baby. I mean, it wasn't just like us, but it was very much like us as a baby. And that's what we call the incarnation. And the history of the incarnation should erase all of those feelings towards God, as far as bad news is concerned. That's really what it should do. We shouldn't have to relate that way to God anymore because he did become a person. And so that's what we're going to consider today as we look at one of the um, primary passages that focus on the incarnation. Before we do, the, the big idea this morning is simply this. When you know that God is with you, no degree of bad news can shake you. When you know that God is with you, no degree of bad news can shake you. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. And it's right in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We read a pretty unique and, and relatively brief account of the birth of Jesus. And this is what we read beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. Until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now here we have an account of the birth of Jesus Christ. We, last week you heard from Pastor Scott. Another account of the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. This account is from Joseph, his adoptive father's perspective. And while we could focus in on Joseph and how difficult that situation must have been. And, you know, all the uncertainties around that. And what, what it must have been like to be visited by the angel. I mean, we've talked about that. This morning, I want to zero in on one very unique element of this passage of Scripture, and it's in that prophecy that we saw in the last few verses of um, this passage, where Matthew quotes a, a pretty obscure prophecy from the Old Testament and connects it to the birth of Jesus. And we're going to explore that prophecy this morning. And what's interesting about the prophecy is a name, a name that this prophecy gives for this child. And the name is Emmanuel. That's the name, Emmanuel, which means, in Hebrew, God with us. And God with, you know, Emmanuel, it's what's, what's kind of strange about it is nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel. As far as we know, his parents didn't call him Emmanuel. They called him Jesus. As far as we know, his disciples, we don't have any examples of his disciples calling him Emmanuel. The other New Testament writers don't speak of Jesus as Emmanuel. So nobody really calls him by this name while he's alive. 
But this name, which is applied to Jesus, is somehow attached to his true identity as a person. It tells us who Jesus really is. It gets at, you know, the meaning of this name tells us what Jesus is about. He's God with us. In Jesus Christ, the human, we see God. We see what God is really like. We see God's attitude. We see his character. We see God's priorities in the person of Jesus. Jesus tells us, when Jesus speaks, he's speaking as God. He is speaking to us God's words. Jesus is, is in other words, the God-man. If God were to become a man, this is, this is who he would be, Jesus. This is who he is, Jesus. That's what God with us really means. I'm going to... For I don't know, I didn't know exactly how to illustrate this, so I'm, I'm going to give you a very crude analogy. Most of you know a man in this church by the name of Don Spielman. Don Spielman, right? Don goes by a, n- a number of different titles. I'm not going to share all the titles with you, just a few. Don, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's an elder. Some people call him Big D. Some people just call him Don. But the name that most that he'll probably most be called by for the rest of his life is Grandpa, which just means old man with us. And it basically describes Don's mission, you know, and his purpose over the rest of his last stages of life, you know, which is to pass on his faith and his values and his character and his wisdom to his grandchildren, you know. So that is, you know, like I said, a crude analogy, but it sort of gets at this, this name thing. This is, this is the name that, that means the most. And so we're going to go back in time this morning, about 700 years to this prophecy, and we're going to see where it comes from. And, and this, is, this happens all the way back in Isaiah chapter 7. And even before that, in 2 Kings chapter 16, we're not going to look at that passage specifically. But what's going on 700 years before the birth of Christ is, you know, this is after the reign of King Solomon when, when Israel was basically at the height, at its peak. Israel was the, you know, the strongest nation in the world when Solomon reigned. He, he had, you know, the nation enjoyed peace and prosperity and wealth and, and power and everything was going great. And many Israelites thought that, hey, this is as good as it's going to get. The Messiah is going to come soon, you know, while Solomon's alive. And of course that didn't happen. Solomon made some, I mean, he sinned against God late in life. Um, God took the kingdom away from him, and the kingdom began to unravel, and eventually um, split, the nation of Israel split into two nations, separate nations. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Ten of the twelve tribes made up Israel, and two, only two small tribes made up the, made up the, um, the nation of Judah, and there was tension between those two nations. And this, this is about 200 years after the reign of Solomon. The, the uh, capital city of Judah is Jerusalem, and the capital city of Israel is Samaria at this time. The king of Judah is Ahaz. That's who we're going to talk about this morning is Ahaz. Now at this time, the Assyrian Empire is the dominating military and political force in the world, the Assyrians. And they're pretty much, you know, going through different territories and occupying different territories and flexing their political muscle. And the little kingdoms of Israel and Judah are no match for Assyria. So Israel makes a pact with another major power, Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, 
okay? And so Israel and Syria come together, and they say, hey, let's come together and let's form an alliance so that Assyria can't take us over, so that we can have some, you know, defense in case Assyria decides to march into our territory. And they try to get Judah to join them. They start pressuring Judah to join this alliance. But Judah's not interested. King Ahaz wants nothing to do with it. But they're pressuring him, and so they try to force his hand. So they actually, the, the kings of um, Israel and Syria, they invade Judah, and they're marching against Jerusalem, and they want to conquer it, but they can't. And, of course, Ahaz lives in the capital city of Jerusalem, and he knows that Syria and Israel are just waiting to pounce. They're waiting to, to, to strike and he's terrified of what might happen. And so in uh, Isaiah 7, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of uh, Ramalia, or son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, he's, they're terrified. He gets this bad news that these other nations are, are, are coming against him and they want to attack and they want to control him and he's terrified. He has no faith. He has no confidence. And the reason is because he's not trusting God. He's not trusting in God at all. We find out he's an evil king. He's doing things in his own strength and he knows that in his own strength he could never stand against the nation of Israel and Syria together, and so he's terrified at this news. And it's at this point that Isaiah enters and gives Ahaz a message from God, and, and this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4. This is the message from God to Ahaz. He says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, don't you have nothing to worry about? The, the power that is raging against you from outside your borders is not going to last. I'm going to burn it. It's going to burn out. And he goes on to say that God's ready to deliver Judah from these two other political powers and that he should ask God for a sign so that he would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is going to come through. God's going to deliver them. God's going to keep them safe. And along with this challenge, God also issued a warning that if Ahaz did not stand in faith and trust God in the situation, that he wouldn't stand at all. So God is giving Ahaz an opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity to to experience God's salvation firsthand. It's like God saying, "Just, just trust me, lean on me, let me handle this, I'll take care of your troubles, you'll stand firm, you'll get through this. But if you don't trust me, you'll be on your own. If you treat me as irrelevant, you'll end up being irrelevant. Is basically what God told Ahaz. So Ahaz is facing what we might call a crisis of belief. A crisis of belief. This is something we've talked about before. Henry Blackaby says, The crisis of belief is a turning point when you must make a decision. You must decide what you believe about God. How you respond at this turning point will determine whether you go on to be involved with God in something God-sized that only God can do or whether you'll continue to go on your own way and miss out on what God has purposed for your life. That's a crisis of belief. So we're about to find out what Ahaz is made of. 
In Isaiah 7, verse 10, this is what we read. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. In other words, if you don't believe me, Ahaz, this is like Isaiah saying, if you don't believe me, a prophet of God, go ahead and ask God any sign you want. Ask God to make the stars dance in the sky. Ask God to make them, to move a mountain. He'll do anything you ask to prove to you that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. Just ask him for a sign. And Ahaz hears God's words and he basically says, thanks for the offer, God, but I'm good. I'm fine. I'll figure this out on my own. You can keep your sign. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And so in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and this is where it gets interesting. Um... Isaiah says to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So it's like God is saying, Okay, Ahaz, you don't want to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want me to get involved? I'm going to get involved anyway. Why is God being so persistent with Ahaz? Why is he determined to give him a sign? Why is he determined to act on his behalf? Why not just hand him over to the enemies and let them get what they deserve? The reason is because God had made a promise hundreds of years before a covenant that he was going to be with his people no matter what. He's going to be with his people. Whether they wanted him to be with, whether, whether his people wanted God to be with them or not. He was going to come through for them whether they wanted him to or not. This is what God had promised from the very beginning. It's what God has always wanted. When God created the universe and everything in it, he created man and he he created Adam and Eve. He put him in the garden so he could be with them, so they could rule with him and enjoy his presence. And then they sinned against God and God, you know, he said they had to leave the garden and he put this angel with a flaming sword at the gates of the garden so they couldn't be with God anymore. But God had made them a promise, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to make sure that we are together forever. I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me. This is what God's always wanted, is just to be with his people. And that's why he's being so persistent. And he basically says, I'm going to give you a sign and when you see it, you'll know that I'm going to make good on my promise. And so here's the sign in verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. There's the promise. There's the prophecy. There's the sign. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Actually, let's finish the story first. So Ahaz, he ignores God. He goes ahead and he, he invites the Assyrians to fight his battle for him. And he invites the Assyrians to come in and fight against Israel and Syria. And he says, you can keep all the spoil. You can take control. And the the Assyrians come in. They do fight. They defeat Israel. They defeat, uh, they defeat Syria. They take all the spoil. And then they stick around. And they pretty much dominate Judah. They take control of the throne. And Ahaz loses power. Because he didn't trust God. Because he did it his own way. That's what happened. He becomes the servant of the Assyrians. 
And in the meantime, a child is born. A child is born. We read in Isaiah chapter 8 to Isaiah's wife. And, and this, in Isaiah's wife, the, the child is born to, um, I forget his wife's name, but she's a young woman. And the word virgin can also mean young woman in the Old Testament. And they give him the name. You'll never guess what they named this child. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You thought I was going to say Emmanuel, didn't you? I told you you'd never guess that name. The, the name means, as the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. So this boy's birth, the, chi- the birth of this child, actually fulfills a portion of the prophecy because before the child it becomes a grown man, sure enough, the power of Israel and Syria comes to nothing. And Judah is set free. The threat is gone. But God isn't done. Isaiah completes the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. This is what he says, and he's referring back to Isaiah 7. He continues on with his prophecy, and this is what we read. And you've probably heard this before, especially around Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's no way that's talking about Isaiah's son. That prophecy is talking about someone else. That's going to come much later. And the principle of this Old Testament story is simply this, that God's presence is inescapable. God's presence is inescapable. He offers his presence to deliver and to save and to bless. But if you refuse God's presence in your life, his presence is still there to judge That's how it happened in the life of Ahaz. That's how it happens in the lives of people today. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, we know, we know now, reading Matthew's prophecy, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Jesus is the child. He is the one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Matthew seems to be the only New Testament, or at least gospel writer, who who sees it. I mean, he looks back at this kind of obscure prophecy, and he sees something that nobody else sees. He sees that like King Ahaz, we're all in a crisis. We all face this very real and present danger. But it's not a danger or a threat that is, is a physical one that's standing outside our borders, ready to attack us. This battle is raging within us. It's a threat that is within us. It's the danger of sin, which dwells in our hearts. And the ability that sin has to actually dominate and control and destroy us. Because everybody has sinned against God, and everybody has rejected His authority in their lives, and we all stand under God's judgment. And sin is crouching at our door, and it wants to master us. It wants to do with us whatever it wants. 
And if we don't find some kind of help or rescuer, it will destroy us. It's Sin is bigger and stronger and smarter than we are. It's constantly accusing us and pressuring us to do what it wants. It's always making us its servants. And so we need a savior. We need a rescuer. We need salvation. And that is exactly what Matthew says this prophecy is about. This prophecy is about the child Jesus, at this point, who is going to save his people from their sins. I mean, forget about political liberation. Forget about, you know, all of that. We need someone to save us from our sins because we stand under God's judgment. And if we aren't rescued from our sin, it will dominate us and it will destroy us. And in the end, we'll be judged for it. We'll be condemned. We'll be lost forever. And so we need God to be with us. And just like God said to Ahaz, I want to be with you to deliver you. He's saying that to us in the person of Jesus. I'm with you to deliver you from your sin. To deliver you from this power. Without Jesus, we have no hope. So in Ahaz, you know, we see this, we see a sign. We see a sign of God's presence in the, in Isaiah's child. And God delivers for a time. But in Jesus, we get a person. We get God as a person. And he's with us. You know, there are so many people that have a hard time trusting in God because they don't see him at work in their lives. They don't see his activity in their lives. They look around at the world and they, you know, they watch the news, they talk to people, and, and they see a lot of evil in the world and a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice and a lot of oppression. And they just assume, you know, God's really not here. He's not present. He's not active. He's not for me. They look at their own lives and they think, where's God? Where is God in my life? You know, I mean, it's just disappointment after disappointment. And so they assume that God is not for them, God is not with them, or God isn't real. One of those things. And if he is real, he's not concerned about my situation. But think about this. If you were to, if you were to go to my kids and ask them to prove that either father exists, and I'm with them, based on how well I do what they want me to do when they want me to do it, <laughs> they would have a hard time proving my existence. I don't often give my kids the answer they want. I don't very often give them the things that they want. I don't very often do for my kids the things they want me to do for them when they want me to do it for them. And oftentimes, I do what they don't want. I take things away from them. I disappoint them. I don't come through on their terms. And if that were the basis for proving my existence as, as their father, they'd have a hard time proving it. And, and we often put God to the test by saying, God, if you're really God and you are for me, then you need to do this thing for me at this time and in this way. And then it doesn't happen and we doubt. And I know that God gave that opportunity to Ahaz and, and he passed it up. But that's not how God operates with us, you know? He doesn't operate that way with us today. He's even better than that. Because he lives in the people who trust him. Jesus makes his home with them. And their lives are changed. 
I mean, think about when children are afraid, what do they want most? What's the one thing children want most when they're afraid? They just want their mom or dad to be with them. They just want them to be with them. That's all they need. If it's the storm, they'll come into your room. And they just want to be in your bed with you. You can't stop the storm. They just want to be with you. Just your presence is enough to calm their fears, to change their attitude, to comfort them. I remember a story Vicky told me when she was in middle school. She, was on, she took the bus to school, and there was a group of kids who would bully her. And they were bullying her, and she was... Vicky's pretty, a pretty tough kid. I mean, she's, got, she's a pretty strong woman, and she was back then too. But it just got, got to the breaking point. And she, was tell, she told her dad about it, and her dad went on the bus with her. He could have said, Vicky, you just need to ignore them. Vicky, just don't listen to them. Don't believe a thing they say. Vicky, you bully them back. <laughs> tell them to leave you alone. Tell the bus driver, whatever. But he didn't. He got on the bus with her. And that changed the whole situation. I remember when I was about the same age, my parents and I were staying at a, um, a camp somewhere, and there's a big lake, and I went out one day on my own, late in the afternoon, in a boat, by myself, to fish. And while I was out on the lake, a huge storm rolled in, and the waves picked up, I mean, it seemed like a huge storm to me. I don't, I don't know how, I, you know, it might not have been that big of a deal, but I couldn't row back. I couldn't get the boat back. I couldn't, I was rowing against the current and I was going nowhere. And I was a couple hundred feet out from the shore, at least. I didn't know if my parents knew where I was. There's rain, there's thunder, you know, the storm is, it's for real. And I can't do anything about it. I'm stuck. And as a kid, I'm thinking the worst. Am I going to be stuck out here forever? Am I going to die? Am I going to drown? What's going to happen to me? And before I could panic, my dad was in a boat coming out to me. And my dad rowed out to me. He got in my boat. I hung on to the other boat, and he rowed us back. He rowed us all the way back by himself, both boats. And that's what I needed to happen, just my dad coming out. And as soon as he came, as soon as he got into my boat, I was no longer afraid. That's all I needed. And I want to challenge you this morning with the words that God gave to Ahaz. Because when we find ourselves in a crisis, whether it's your marriage that's on the break of ruin, or your kids are pu- pushing you to the brink of insanity, when you're anxious and tempted to take, maybe you're anxious at your job and you're tempted to take a shortcut or to compromise, to get ahead or even just to keep up at work, Maybe you're facing financial pressure. Whatever's the source of your fear or anxiety, listen to the words that God gave Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. I'm going to be with you. I am with you. Don't, don't lose any sleep over this. From, from God's point of view, from God's point of view, it's, it's already taken care of. There's nothing to fear. Whatever threat it is you're facing from the outside, you have nothing to fear. God is with you. He's already dealt with your most dangerous, urgent threat, and that is the threat of sin. 
He's taken care of it on the cross of Jesus Christ where our sin was nailed and our sin was judged. I mean, Jesus died to our sin. He died to sin once for all so that we could live to God. That's what we're told. We have nothing more to fear. God is offering to be with us in the mess and the chaos of our lives. All we have to do is trust him. We have to come to the place where we say to God, God, I'm giving up my right to live my life however I want to. I'm giving my life to you. I'm here to do your will, God. And then we just do what Joseph did. A- after his encounter with the angel, he just di- he did what God said. There were a lot of questions he didn't have answered. That is not the way that Joseph wanted to be married was with a wife who was on her way to having a baby. There'd be all kinds of questions and assumptions and people talking behind closed doors about what was going on there. But Joseph trusted God. He obeyed. He did what God said to do. Because when you know God is with you, no degree of, good new, of bad news can shake you. I mean, you can get some really bad news, and it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be a little anxious. It's okay to think about what the outcome might be and to wonder. But there's no need for us to be terrified. There's no need for us to panic. There's no need for us to be hasty or to rush to unnecessary conclusions. Because we know that God is with us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Emmanuel. Who shows us what you're really like, God. And we know today that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of you. In his character, in his actions, in his words in his attitude, in his humility, in his mercy, in his compassion, in his righteousness, in his justice. We know who you are, Lord, because of Jesus Christ, because he is God with us. And we thank you, Jesus, today for entering our world, for entering into this world of injustice and and chaos and sin and danger and for giving us hope that you one day are going to return and you are going to make everything right and that one day, God, you are going to be with us forever because that's your purpose and nobody, no power can stand against your purpose in this world. And so we wait for the day of Jesus' second coming, Lord, because that's what you've promised to do and we wait for it with eager expectation and we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be patient and to trust you and to put our faith in you and not to be hasty and not to be terrified or afraid because you are with us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.